Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing as well as anyone can do during bar prep. And I'm you know happy to have a reason to get away from it by joining you and our listeners to talk about uh to talk about law still so i can't i can't escape it the countdown is on right what one more month to the bar about that yes actually exactly that terrifying (laughs) well well good luck preparing for that i'm glad i'm not taking the bar in a month on today's show we are going to check in on the what i think is the most important issue in georgia politics the issue that we've been following pretty religiously for the last really since the end of the 2020 election and that is uh Georgia's changes to election law and how those uh, may stand or not stand, depending on what other forces there are that could stop this law. So specifically here, we're talking about Senate Bill 202 that passed in the last legislative session to put into place a litany of restrictions on voting in Georgia that, as we've discussed, um, really in some make it more difficult to vote. I mean, that that law reemerged this week when the U.S. Department of Justice announced that it was suing the state of Georgia over certain provisions in Senate Bill 202. Um, they are now the eighth lawsuit against that law or against portions of that law. Um, and so it's yet another legal challenge. But we are going to talk today about first about whether or not that legal challenge might actually be successful. And if it's not successful, if there are other reasons that the Department of Justice is stepping in here when there were seven when there were seven other lawsuits already in place. And then we'll also talk about how the politics of this will play out. You know, certainly this, you know, this is not just a, a technical issue about what provisions make it both the easiest and safest to vote. This is also a political fight um, that's really animated Republican Party politics, as we've talked about recently. So we're going to spend the bulk of the show on that today. So Luke, this lawsuit that was announced by the Department of Justice on Friday, they're challenging several provisions of the state's election restrictions law. This includes the ban on government entities distributing absentee ballot applications, some fines that were going to be put into place on non-government entities like uh, nonprofit groups, church groups, other groups that send absentee ballot applications um, that may be duplicates, maybe ones that people had already received. This lawsuit also challenges the deadline to request absentee ballots, that deadline being moved up. It challenges uh, photo ID requirements around absentee ballots the limits on the use of county drop boxes, their prohibitions on distributing food and water at voting sites, and their prohibition on counting out-of-precinct provisional ballots that are cast before 5 p.m. on Election Day. What did you think when you saw the U.S. Department of Justice was stepping in with yet another lawsuit against Senate Bill 202? Well, I was very happy to see that the Department of Justice is challenging this law because I think it's important to exercise the power that voters gave the Biden administration, both directly in Georgia, but across the country to stand up against things that are clearly wrong. And SB 202 is clearly wrong. It is clearly trying to make it harder to vote in the state of Georgia. And regardless of how successful it will be, which, you know, unfortunately, I'm worried it will not be successful. I think the fact that the Justice Department is doing this is very important because, 
there has to be some challenge to this effort. And especially in a week where the main voting rights, voter expansion, voter protection bills that the federal government were considering uh, have, have hit significant and potentially fatal roadblocks, I think it is good to see that there's some progress being made somewhere in the government that electing Democrats you know, elections have consequences in the good direction uh, every once in a while. And so I, I think on that front, I was very happy to see it uh, for, for a lot of reasons I'm sure we're, we're about to get into. Luke, something that was notable from the press conference where this lawsuit was announced on Friday is that the Attorney General Merrick Garland, he said that um, in, a, in a previous era, Senate Bill 202 may not have ever gone into effect I mean, he was referencing the the old preclearance process um, that was allowed under the Voting Rights Act before the Shelby County case in 2013. Um, can you just remind listeners sort of what happened with preclearance in that 2013 ruling and um, why this law was allowed to go into effect and then the avenue to challenge the law is to actually sue against the law as opposed to the old preclearance process? The 1965 Voting Rights Act created a process called preclearance where when you were a state that was under preclearance, you had to get a three-judge panel or the Justice Department to sign off on your changes to your voting laws. And prior to the 2013 decision in Shelby County uh, versus Holger, uh, Georgia was one of the states that had to be pre-cleared before uh, we made any changes. It very much restricted the ability of the state to change its voting laws in the free willing way we've been doing it since uh, 2013. And a lot of these provisions, especially with the Biden administration, just frankly would not have been pre-cleared. They just would not have let us make these changes because the Justice Department would have told the state that we couldn't do that and probably would not have even tried uh, because of how much ability that gave the federal government to prevent states from taking actions that were just so clearly aimed at hurting the turnout of racial minorities. So, Luke, I think this in some ways contributes to some skepticism about the possibility that this lawsuit or any of the other lawsuits could actually overturn significant portions of SB 202. You know, under the old preclearance process, the the same Department of Justice that is filing this lawsuit would have been the Department of Justice that would have been pre-clearing provisions of SB 202 that they are now challenging in court. So do you think that, you know, a if this law had been passed with preclearance still in effect, that a Biden Department of Justice would have stopped many of these provisions from going to effect in the first place? And, and what is the difference between how a Biden Department of Justice would have treated these claims and how the courts are likely to treat these claims. The Justice Department had a lot of power under preclearance. I mean, this is why it is called preclearance, because the Department of Justice could basically just say no and not let them do it. And it was very hard to overcome preclearance. If if the Department of Justice refused to sign off on it, there's very little that the state could do to stop them from 
denying the law. Uh, and so, again, that's why I don't even know if this law would have been attempted uh, under preclearance regimes. So that that is part of the loss that Shelby Counter versus Holder had for the country uh, and uh, minority voters around the country, but especially in Georgia and states like Georgia that were under the preclearance regime. And so now, instead of being able to use the Section 5 preclearance provision to enforce Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, they have to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is uh, a lot harder to succeed on these days than it used to be. And there are a lot of cases that have already gone through the court over the past decade that really make it clear that there's an uphill climb for the Justice Department and really any of these lawsuits to successfully overturn the parts of the law that they are seeking to challenge just because the standard has been raised so high for plaintiffs to prove that Section 2 has actually been violated. Um, According to Justice.gov, which is the Justice Department's website, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in one of the language minority groups as identified in blah, blah, blah. Uh, so the the short version, like hearing that, you would think, oh, great, <laughs> like this is obviously done to discriminate on the basis of race. And there's lots of data in the... Justice Department lawsuit that shows disproportionately uh, pretty much everything that this law targets are things that black voters have been using or, you know, in the 2020 election used more than white voters. And just, I mean, they go, they have a whole litany of stats. And, you know, I'm not going to read all these numbers, but to give you an example, many of the provisions of SB 202 target absentee voting and unquestionably make it harder to absentee vote because they're putting a lot of new requirements on absentee voting. And so in November 2018, they had 2018 election, Stacey Abrams running for governor, 7%, less than 7% of black voters voted by absentee ballot, whereas in the 2020 election, 30% did. Uh, That's obviously a pretty huge increase. And the the other number I want to mention is uh, drop boxes, which are used to return absentee ballots. In November 2020 and January 2021, there were lots and lots of drop boxes all over the metro Atlanta, where, of course, the majority of the minority population in Georgia resides. And, you know, for example, in Cobb County, 60% of the absentee ballots that were returned were put in a drop box. And so, I mean, that is just obviously an astronomical number. And the result of having all these drop boxes is that the rejection rate for absentee ballots is plummeted and surprise surprise disproportionately in past elections and i'm sure in this one late ballots that were rejected because they showed up too late were disproportionately cast by black voters so there's lots of examples throughout this complaint where there are things that this law sb 202 targets that are new trends, old trends of voting that disproportionately discriminate against black voters. So based on that, you would think, well, they're going to win. Great. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's that may not be what happens because of the fact of how hard it is to argue 
that laws actually discriminate against minorities now because of some recent cases uh, in the Supreme Court. And many of these cases were from a time where the court was actually less conservative than it is now. And so the bar for successfully arguing these complaints has likely gone higher, not lower, despite the obvious reasons to anyone who's been paying attention to what's been happening as to why these particular provisions have been pursued. Yeah, as you mentioned, the bar here in this case is to prove that there was intent to make it more difficult specifically for racial minorities to vote. But I think it's likely that the state of Georgia is going to offer up some different reasoning for why these policies were put into place. If you listen to their public rhetoric while this legislation was being debated, basically since the 2020 election, they have spoken of this need to increase and secure voter confidence in elections. They say that that voter confidence was hampered by the use of drop boxes and increased absentee balloting during the 2020 election, despite the fact that it took place in a pandemic, the kind of pandemic that made us wary of uh, being in public spaces with each other, which obviously I think lended to this increase in absentee ballots and the use of drop boxes. Luke, they just really need some rationale that is different than a rationale that said they did this with the intent of reducing access to the polls for black people, right? I, so the way that I would look at this is there, there's two there's two cases I think are helpful to wrapping your head around this because again, the way that section two is framed and common sense is framed, you would think that this would be easier than it probably will be. And so the first case I would mention is, um, I'm going to go in reverse chronological order here, is uh, Abbott versus Perez, which was a 2018 case uh, regarding redistricting in Texas. And and, and basically, Texas has dr- had drawn redistricting lines that were thrown out as an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. And because this litigation takes a long time, which, you know, in case you didn't know, this, this litigation is going to take a long time uh, before, uh, you know, it gets to the Supreme Court because there's going to be lots and lots of steps. And so a lower court, they had thrown out this map as a racial gerrymander, but in between the time that it was going to get to the Supreme Court and uh, finally get settled, there were definitely going to be elections. And so they had drawn a temporary map to basically say, hey, this is a placeholder map. We are not saying that this makes this racial gerrymander okay, but this is a little bit better and it will be fine as a temporary map that you can use to hold your elections in between now and when this litigation actually gets settled. And so what the Texas legislature did uh, is they took that judicially appointed map and said, great, that's going to be our map now. And they voted and uh, support it. And then when it got to the Supreme Court, they, uh, said, well, of course they did not pass this map with some racially drawn districts for the purpose of racial discrimination. They drew it for the purpose of getting rid of this litigation. (laughs) And so, you know, Justice Alito basically made the argument and raised the standard so that plaintiffs had to prove that there was racial discrimination intended by a law 
buy a redistricting map, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a very hard bar to meet. Like you have to prove what is in the mind and hearts of other people. Uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes the facts can be so blatantly racist that even if no one said, Hey, we're passing this to, uh, you know, make it harder for black people to vote that you can overcome that. But generally speaking, you can't. And so the other example I would hit on is the Crawford versus Marion County election board, which was an Indiana case from 2008, which this is the case that started up the whole voter ID conversation, which is of course also present in this legislation. And, you know, the short version of, of that one is that the court found that Indiana had a legitimate reason to use voter ID that the burden because it did, of course, create a burden, because I think any regulation creates a burden, uh, was not so high that it outweighed the interest that Indiana had in preventing voter fraud, modernizing the elections, and increasing voters' confidence in the election process, which I think is a really, really important argument for uh, Georgia here, because, of course, they're not going to say we did this because we don't want black people to vote, they may say they do it because they don't want Democrats to vote because partisan laws, partisan suppression, at least in redistricting, has been found to be okay by the Supreme Court. I don't really think they're going to lean on that, though. I think they're going to lean on, we're doing this because everyone's really concerned about voter fraud. Um, and that argument is kind of hard to overcome because it is objectively true that people are, but uh, that is because the legislators themselves have continuously talked about it. Luke, when you and I talked about the potential impact of this law, I think we were pretty clear-eyed about the intent regarding this surge of democratic participation, much of which was participation by black voters. It was clear that Republicans felt a political imperative to structure laws and rules and procedures in a way that would address that surge in democratic participation. But we also discussed how, in some ways, this law as it was written and as the provisions were being discussed during the legislative session, that it could also make it more difficult for Republican voters to vote, particularly as they have come to rely more on voters with less education levels that may have sort of a lower propensity to turn out to vote in, the, in these barriers, at least for some voters in some places, may make it more difficult for some of their voters to vote. But as I looked at the way that activist groups like Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action and other state-based activists, when they talked about this law, they really honed in on the racist intent behind this law. Do you think in any ways the public conversation about what the intent of this law is and the push by activists to say this is a law that was passed with racist intent, do you think that that'll have any bearing in court? Like, was there a reason that the racial impact of this law was such a focus among this law's most vocal opponents? I think the complicated thing here uh i hate this question because i'm gonna get myself in trouble answering it <laughs> probably which is ideally you you like don't want justices 
in any court on any issue to be influenced by the public conversation. Because ideally, they're supposed to be neutral arbiters that they're going to look at the facts that you have actually proven and make a decision, right? And so, to me, the way I look at this case is that there's a hell of a lot of coincidences. You know, it's like we elect the first Democratic black senator from a former state of the confederacy the first black senator from the state of georgia the first jewish american senator from the state of georgia the first time democrats have won an election in the state of georgia since i was born in 1992 it's it's, it's a well uh, on the presidential level excuse me um and it's like that's a hell of a lot of coincidences that you know that and then combine that with the increase in black turnout and the increasing absentee voting like republicans loved absentee ballots in the state of georgia until there were two elections where more democrats used them than republicans and more black people used them than previously had been used and so i mean it's just a lot of coincidences and so you know, there, and there's other ways that they could have made the election system in Georgia safer, quote unquote, and you know, more have more integrity and more transparency than these reasons that just so happen to disproportionately hurt black voters. And the thing there that you know, I feel I feel both ways about. You know, the on the one hand, to me that is a very clear narrative that makes sense. There is in this uh, lawsuit very clearly laid out the history of Georgia having racial discrimination. And so the intent is definitely heavily implied, but it's not proven. And so I think this is going to be an interesting case, both for the state of Georgia and the Justice Department and judges that will ultimately be ruling on it, both the, you know, the lower courts and probably the Supreme Court, because I assume they will eventually hear this, because the Justice Department is going to have a very coherent argument for why this was done and that it was done to hurt Democrats in Georgia. And in Georgia, many, many, many Democrats are black and most black people are Democrats. Uh, just, you know, the, that, that are, that's just the numbers, right? And so I, I think they're going to have a good argument for why. And the Republicans are going to have no argument on voter fraud because there's a bunch of quotes from people who are sued in this lawsuit, primarily Brad Raffensperger uh, in his official capacity, not his personal capacity, you know, him saying there was no voter fraud in this election. And then, so it's going to be very, like, I don't think they can actually make the argument that we felt there was this dire need to make voting more secure in Georgia. Now, they can say, and they probably will say, we felt like there is a dire need to make Georgia voters have more faith in our elections. Um, but, you know, is that enough to overcome all of the reasons why this looks like it was motivated by race? And unfortunately, I think the answer is probably yes, uh, because in previous cases, that has that has been the case. The other issue here too is that this is currently a hypothetical because this there has have not been any statewide elections. There's been some special elections since this law was passed. And so you can't really say that like, oh, this law has reduced African American turnout by twenty percent because there hasn't been an election since. And so we don't have any data to actually prove that this will have a disproportionately racial effect, which in previous cases has been incredibly helpful in overturning 
laws that did not have the explicit, very helpful quote from a legislator, you know, saying, hey, what we really want to do is make it harder for black people to vote. Uh, because obviously when you have those cases, I mean, they've even overturned some laws that did not have significantly racialized effects just because someone said we're doing it because we think it'll hurt black people. Um, and so since they don't have that in this case, at least not yet, uh, they do have some quotes from Ralston, uh, you know, our house speaker that they have in the lawsuit saying, you know, we're really concerned about all this super high turnout, but he of course does not say we're concerned about this super high black turnout. He just says turnout. And so, I mean, it's not this like huge logical leap to say, hey, they did this because of all this increased black turnout, but it is still a logical leap. You have to make the leap because there's not, at least at this moment, express proof that they dig it because they wanted to target out the things that black voters were using. You know, there, there is not at this moment an email <laughs> from a legislator saying, hey, <laughs> give me the, you know, the racial statistics of voting in the state of Georgia and help me craft a law to make it harder for black people to vote or other minorities to vote. We don't have that stuff right now. And so, and without that, despite the public narrative, despite any logical person being able to put two and two together, that might not be a high enough standard for the court. Yeah, the other thing, Luke, you know, you mentioned this data that has been helpful in other cases when you're looking back at the impact of a law already into place as opposed to estimating the forward-looking impact of a law that hasn't been in place for a statewide election yet. The other complicating factor is you're going to have in the 2022 election, um, you're going to have the complicating factor that the state's first black senator is going to be going for his reelection. You're also likely to have Stacey Abrams at the top of the Democratic ticket. And so you're likely to have all of these organizations and groups that have been participating in voter turnout that have been fighting against previous provisions put into place that they have argued have been discriminatory and aimed at making it harder for black Georgians to vote. You're going to have those groups pouring in resources and efforts to actually overcome the impacts of this law. And with both Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams at the top of Georgia's Democratic ticket, it's likely that they could be successful in overcoming a lot of these barriers and then wouldn't necessarily have the data that says this law caused lower turnout because their efforts to overcome those barriers might actually increase turnout or make it close to turnout among black voters that you saw in 2020. Um, and so that brings me to Luke that this is not only going to be a legal story for the next year or so, at least until the Supreme Court likely hears this case. Um, it's also going to be a political story. And you saw this in the reactions that various political figures across the state had. Governor Kemp described it as weaponizing the U.S. Justice Department. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, said that the Biden administration continues to do the bidding of Stacey Abrams um, and that they looked forward to defending this law in court. They looked forward to winning. Um, and they're obviously going to use this as a political tool um, to argue what they think is federal government overreach, to argue that, you know, in their view, Democrats want to make elections insecure, open to fraud, and that in some ways this allows Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp to sort of pick up the mantle that Trump was carrying following the 2020 election, or at least 
speak to it in a way that identifies them with the most conservative parts of the party that have been preaching voter fraud since the end of the election. Um, in some ways, I think that this is a political gift to Kemp and Raffensperger as they fight off challenges to their reelections. I, I think you're not wrong, but I don't think it's going to be a, a great political boon to them. And that is because the venue for this debate is going to be courtrooms. And one, most voters, most Americans, most Georgians don't pay attention to many court cases, uh, especially not, you know, court cases based on voting laws and not high profile murders by celebrities or, you know, uh, other, other interesting, uh, cases, uh, like that, because the drama is just not that high. And especially in this situation, the, I, I would be very surprised if Georgia lawyers defending this law in court making argument that there was this rampant voter fraud problem in Georgia that they had to fix and that you know if it wasn't for these wily democrats in or you know the election officials in Fulton County that we would have Senator David Perdue we would have Sen Senator Kelly Loeffler and somehow by you know winning Georgia alone Donald Trump would still be president because that is what the far-right base would want to hear from them to be success, you know, for that to be a successful political thing for them. Because ultimately what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to say, Donald Trump did not win, Joe Biden won, Raphael Warnock won, Kelly Loeffler did not win, John Ossoff won, David Perdue won, did not win, and there was no frog that brought forth those victories in court. Um, because if they... <laughs> I mean, I do not think it would be wise of them to try to make the arguments that have been laughed out of court uh, throughout the country about this being some huge voting fraud bonanza that, that caused these results, and that's why they changed the law. Uh, I just do not think that would be <laughs> that would not help them at all uh, with anyone because those voters already don't trust them and courts do not like it when people bring fake facts to them and so that that political element is not going to be as good for them on those things they will get the benefit of being like we're fighting stacy abrams in court which you know so so much of kemp and raffensperger's statements were that i i found it really funny <laughs> That uh, Kemp's statement uh, highlighted the fact that he had been sued by the Department of Justice twice already and had, uh, you know, he wants to go three, three for three. And it's like, I, I've never known someone to brag about getting sued. <laughs> I, I, you know, Donald Trump bragged about suing people, but uh, not, not getting sued. So I, I thought that was an interesting element of his statement. Of course, I remember he did talk about that in 2018, that he went two for two against the Obama Justice Department. I mean, this is this has been a part of his politics. I, I, th I think you know to argue against my my own point a minute ago a little bit here. This is a a comfortable space for them in conservative politics, and this helps them with the base. But it brings you back to the same dynamic that we've talked about on this show over and over again. That what helps them maintain support among their most passionate voters in their party may take away from their support from moderate voters who are who have a real choice between them and Stacey Abrams. And it's 
the focus on these kinds of issues, Kelly Leffler tried this, um, Donald Trump in some ways tried this during his election in this state. It's the focus on these kinds of issues that has that have been polarized in a way that I think puts the majority of voters against where Republicans stand. You know, there's one piece of this that's voter ID that I want to come back to in a second. Voter ID polls pretty well. Um, the AJC poll from earlier this year showed that it was kind of the one provision that was considered in this law that had high and bipartisan support. But other changes, like changes to absentee ballot processes or changes to drop boxes, people in Georgia were more skeptical of those changes. And it's sort of more of an uphill argument for Republicans to say, we needed these changes because of fraud, you know, when you don't have any substantial fraud to point to, um, and when the other side, the Democrats are saying that you did this with racist intent, they just have not really won over public opinion on those provisions in the way that uh, voter ID has become sort of a broadly bipartisan supported policy. And so, Luke, that's one interesting political thing for me is that looking, turning our attention to the federal government here, there's this been, been this debate in the Senate about how Democrats are going to put into place some sort of protection, some sort of federal protections for voting rights access. The For the People Act, which was the big Democratic message bill passed in 2019 under the Trump administration, passed again by the U.S. House earlier this year, that bill has basically stalled in the Senate. And so Stacey Abrams was actually a part of validating a compromise offered up by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who has been the thorn in the side of Democrats in Washington in the 50-50 U.S. Senate. Um, she backed a, backed a compromise offered by Manchin that included a national voter ID requirement, but it, it structured that requirement in a way that in many conservative states that have passed voter ID laws, there's a limited list of documents that you can use to prove your identification for voting purposes. And the way that this ID requirement would work is it expands that list of documents in the states that have strict voter ID laws now, including Georgia. But it also, in some states that have no voter ID requirement at all, it would basically introduce that requirement into those states for the first time. I think some advocates were surprised when Stacey Abrams backed this proposal because it is certainly watered down compared to what activists have been demanding. Um, But what did you think of Abrams basically trying to validate a compromise measure and give Democrats a path forward at the federal level to protect voting rights? I think that was very important, and I'm happy that she did that for a couple of reasons. One, and, and this is something that I've heard from another, a lot of podcasts, and I think it would be very beneficial to join the chorus of people who, the small chorus, the choir, very small choir, <laughs> not not chorus, uh, small choir, that have pointed out the fact that for the people was always a message bill and was probably never going to pass. And I think it was a really, really bad miscalculation for Democratic leadership to pretend anything else. I think there's nothing wrong with having a message bill and having a bill that we say, hey, we would like this to pass. This is our vision for what voting should look like in the United States of America. Pass it through the House. Send it to the Senate. Make Republicans vote it down. 
but not pretend like it actually was going to get passed in the system that we currently have, especially when, you know, Manchin had not signed on. A lot of other senators probably didn't want to do it and just weren't saying it because people like to hide, you know, uh, behind Joe Manchin. And really have put that attention on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which Manchin supports, which is a very strong, very good bill, uh, because the attack on voting rights is so substantial across the country, I really would take anything <laughs> over what we currently have. Um, and Manchin's proposal is stronger <laughs> than the John Lewis Voting Rights Act proposal, uh, to my knowledge, last time I saw it, because of course legislation kind of changes <laughs> while it's up there in the process. Last time I saw it, it's stronger because it got rid of partisan gerrymandering. It would apply the preclearance provision, which we talked a lot about at the beginning of the show, and how strong it is and how useful it is to the entire country. And, I mean, those things alone, I think, are very, very strong because the problem with voting ID is not that there's some problem with making people ask for an ID when they vote. It's that due to socioeconomic reasons minorities and people in poverty are less likely to have those IDs. And part of Manchin's proposal is to make it easier to for those populations to get the IDs. There's nothing wrong with asking for an ID. It is the fact that people don't have those IDs in a disproportionately racialized and economic way. That's the problem with it. And so Manchin's bill actually doing the proactive thing and helping people get the IDs, getting rid of partisan gerrymandering and preclearance. I mean, that would be huge, 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 very, very good bill. You know, not everything I would want, not as far as I think we should go, but that doesn't mean it's a bad bill. And I, you know, that's the thing I really hope Democrats think about in the negotiations that are going on both on this issue and other issues like infrastructure, it's like, do not take no bill over a good bill. You know, if, if you have some perfect bill, you would rather have, like we have so many big problems, especially in this area, pushing the ball forward in, and this bill would significantly do that because partisan gerrymandering is such a huge problem. That's how you get Marjorie Taylor green. That's how you get Andrew Clyde in Congress. You know, I would take that. That would be a great deal. And uh, it is higging on the parts where there's a lot more universal agreement that these are things that are hurtful to the democracy. Because you can have legitimate debates over, you know, public financing of elections and some of these other issues. But most voters, most people in their heart of hearts think that, yes, like candidates for office should reveal their tax returns. Partisan gerrymandering is bad. Uh, you know, people should not discriminate based on race. Most people think that. And there are so many provisions of for the people that were uh, more explicitly partisan. And so I think Abrams did a brave thing <laughs> by aligning herself on that legislation. But I think, unfortunately, uh, this is just another area where the, the federal Republicans are showing that they are not willing to do the right thing for democracy on these issues, even when it's less explicitly partisan. So Luke, despite Abrams endorsing Manchin's compromise proposal, 
it does appear, at least for now, that the push on voting rights is fizzled out, if not completely dead. And the main impediment here seems to be the Senate filibuster that despite the fact that when they did the procedural vote on the For the People Act in the Senate, which tied 50-50, so they got all 50 Democrats on board to move forward on the debate on on voting rights legislation. And of course, among Democrats, that means they probably haven't ironed out all the differences. You know, you're not sure where this mansion compromise sits, whether it actually has progressive support. But Democrats were basically ready to move forward. Um, but the problem is, even though you could get 50 to move forward, 50 is not going to overcome the filibuster. And really at the heart of this, because this is a bill that can't really be passed under reconciliation, the Democrats only process that they've used for other legislation during the Biden administration, they really have to come to an agreement to amend or get rid of the filibuster to push this legislation forward. And that appears to be the main sticking point for where they don't have a path forward. And so for Democrats federally, for the downstream impacts on Georgia and other states, if they can't find a path forward, what are the potential impacts of doing nothing? And in particular, do you have concerns about this new strain of proposals that isn't even directly addressed in federal legislation now that is attacking the election certification process and opening up the possibility that local elections officials who are partisan actors could refuse to certify election results that they don't agree with? Well, those are two giant topics. So I'm going to start with the Senate and then go certification. So on the Senate, the history of the Senate, the history of the filibuster is preventing voting rights. Robert Caro's excellent master of the Senate. I know I've mentioned it before. <laughs> I mean, that is a, a tome, a 1,000 page book that primarily, besides being about Lyndon Johnson and his antics, is the history of the United States Senate using the filibuster to not do anything on voting rights. And so, you know, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the constant, almost unanimous reapprovals of the Voting Rights Act are are the exceptions to the rule. <laughs> there are the exceptions that prove the rule. The rule of the United States Senate is a constant defeat of voting rights efforts in that chamber. And so, you know, I am not surprised that even Manchin's still robust, still very strong proposal was unable to pass or even get any Republican supports because the, you know, Republican Party, unfortunately, has taken the place of the Dixiecrat, Southern Democratic, racist, white supremacist party of, you know, the post-World War, well, I mean, really, you know, uh, the history of the Democratic Party until, you know, starting, it started to change in 1965 forward in the South. Um, and the, the Republicans, unfortunately, have just completely absorbed that position and absorbed its intransigence intransigency and its attempts to prevent any progress from being made on allowing minorities to vote. And I think that is a tragedy. And I really wish that there would be some breakage from the Republican Party 
and that there are good human beings in the Senate. There's a lot of terrible ones, but there's some good ones. And I, I wish they would do more to push this issue forward. I think getting rid of the filibuster would be a, is the only way, unfortunately, to get this solved. I, I wish we lived in a country where some Republicans would stand up for what was right and would be willing to support this legislation, as many of them had previously in reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act, they'd supported, you know, 80% of what Manchin is asking for. They supported pretty much exactly what the Voting Rights Act, or the John Lewis Voter uh, Rights Act asked for. And so I, I, I'm i still holding out hope against all common sense that they will do that just because I think it would help lower tensions significantly, even if it was just the John Lewis proposal and not Manchin's stronger proposal. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. And I, you know, it, it's just, I don't think there's enough time. I think that Manchin is living in a different reality. Kirsten Sinema is considering the ways that Democrats have legitimately used the filibuster for good things in the past. And she's prioritizing the inevitability that one day Democrats will be in the minority in the United States Senate again. And not risking getting rid of the filibuster for the chance that Democrats could could use that as an opportunity to make the system more fair and make the votes that go to Democrats more proportionally lead to votes in the Senate. Um, so I, I, I don't feel great there. And I, I, I think that is really why it is so important that the Justice Department is pursuing this lawsuit because, one— Elections should have consequences in positive directions every once in a while. And so I think if the Biden administration, if Democrats are not going to be able to provide a win with legislation, they should at least be providing a defense in litigation. And so I, I'm happy to see they're doing that. I think it's important for our voters to see that we're doing something to defend voting rights. And, you know, maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe maybe some provisions of this law that just truly are egregious and without any legitimate purpose except racial discrimination will be struck down. I'm not super hopeful for that. Um, the, the other thing I'll talk about... Um, before I get to certification is, is the narrative situation, the uh, thing I think Democrats really need to do, which is expand voting rights where we can, because there are lots of places, New York is probably the most egregious, where the voting rights laws, the access to the ballot is almost just as regressive or even worse in some of these places, and they just have not, they've just sat on these laws for a really long time, and they need to start moving those laws in the right direction. Because, to my understanding, I think New York actually has the exact same uh, provision against people supplying water and food in line that Georgia has, and has just had it for a very, very long time. Well, and, and just an important interjection on that, too, is that the rebuttal from Governor Kemp and other Republicans, when you criticize Georgia voting laws, is that, yes, they moved in a more restrictive direction from pre-2020 election to post-Senate Bill 202. In some ways, it is still easier to vote in Georgia than in some of these other Democratic stronghold states that you mentioned, Luke. Um, and so they often say that, that it's still easier to vote in Georgia than it is in New York, and that Democrats are being hypocritical by criticizing a state where Republicans hold power like Georgia and not 
placing that same criticism on democratic led states where voting is still can still be difficult. Right. And I and I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that is a hypocrisy that we cannot abide by. And it is critically important to change those laws to make it easier to vote in those states to get more understanding out to people like how the system can be better to try new things to try to increase turnout i I think those are really really important things to do in democratic states to to show that this value is real especially when we're getting you know beat up by the filibuster and the federal level it would help to see you know democrat states do good things on voting rights and and to be fair new york even who i I think is probably the worst uh you know agree the most egregious example it is moving in the right direction and they have implemented bills that are probably going to pass and probably be signed by the governor to make voting easier in the state but there's more they can do and there's more a lot of democrat states can do and i so i hope they start to do those things. So, you know, that's, that's the first thing. The other thing is I think Democrats need to be very careful. And I think truthfully, we've done a good job so far of, you know, pointing out that this is going to make it harder to vote, but not so hard that you shouldn't still do it. And they don't want you to vote. And so you should prove that you care and turn out and hopefully it will not make the increased turnout start turning in in the opposite direction and luckily you know despite how bad these laws are common sense and how much i think on the margins it will hurt it is typically on the research on the margins and so i don't think this is going to be the political salvation for the republican party that they think it will be i think it's just going to increase the burden on people to vote and that is unacceptable even if the exact same amount of people vote even if more people vote after this law the fact that you've made it harder for no reason is unjustifiable to me like i the fact you know if there was a legitimate problem that's one thing but just to make it harder to make it harder people's lives are hard enough you should not make having a voice in the democracy even harder when it's already hard for so so many people to do it and i i think that is unacceptable even if it doesn't lead to reduced turnout so to come back to certifications here, you alluded to this that in some ways there there's sort of two different impacts of these laws. There are the barriers, the formal barriers that are put into place by these laws, and then there's the reaction by democratic campaigns and voter advocacy groups that fight against those barriers that pull together resources and deploy a bunch of infrastructure to help people overcome these barriers. It is possible related to some of these specific provisions that are being challenged by the Department of Justice that you could have a more organized system for distributing absentee ballot applications that keeps all of the non-government groups on the right side of the law. You could have good advertising around drop boxes so that even though you have a significantly limited number, people who want to take advantage of those drop boxes could know the hours and the locations that they could use those. You know, there there's a lot of infrastructure available to help people overcome these barriers. And the narrative that these laws were put into place to make it more difficult for Democrats to vote, even though that is allowable in a in a legal sense, that also could be motivating to Democratic voters who 
oppose these restrictions. The one thing that is sort of new that infrastructure designed to help people overcome voting barriers really can't address is this issue of certifying election results and the provisions in the law that allow local elections officials to be changed out um, and the potential, although I think it's unclear how this would work, but the potential that the certification process could become a partisan battleground that makes it more difficult to certify election results when, for instance, Republicans do not like the outcome. How much concern do you have about that process? Is there anything that we know about how that process could play out? And I I think it's notable here that that is not a provision that's expressly challenged in this Department of Justice lawsuit against Georgia. Yeah, I'm not surprised that they didn't challenge it. And that's unfortunately going to be the reason why this answer (laughs) is not super informative, which is just, I am unaware of certification being used as a weapon like Donald Trump wanted it to be uh, in the 2020 election. I mean, really, it was just a perfunctory administrative thing of people saying, hey, (laughs) we counted the numbers, we checked the math, everything checks out, it looks good, like we're done here, you know? Like, it really is not something where opinion should be interjected. And I will admit that I have not read... (laughs) all the statutes in the state of Georgia or the federal government you know, revolving around certification. But I, I have a feeling that if there was a case where, you know, this, this law is used for Georgia to take over the Fulton County election board and they just say, yeah, we're not going to certify the election. There's going to be a follow-up question by someone saying why and if they just say we don't like it or too many black people voted and we want to win the election i imagine that will result in a lawsuit that will then result in you know section two probably being effective uh, in the voting rights act or something like i'm sure there's some there is going to be some action and I, i just really doubt that the reaction to blatantly overthrowing an election with no evidence would lead to lawsuits that were successful against that action. I I would be very, very shocked if this current administration in 2022, you know, saw like Brian, you know, Brian Kemp loses by, you know, 10,000 votes to Stacey Abrams, and that's because of Fulton County, and the state election board takes over Fulton County and says, we're not certifying Fulton County based off the certified votes, Brian Kemp wins. Like, I don't see that happening. I mean, could it happen? Sure. And could they try? Sure. But typically, the people that get put in these positions are bureaucrats who aren't, you know, crazy people who would do something like that. Um, That is unfortunately becoming less true uh, day by day. And, you know, instances of, you know, Jody Heiss running for Secretary of State, if he was successful, he would be on that voting board as a non-voting member. Uh, So he actually would have less power than Raffensperger had in 2020 to do something like that. Um, But that being said, you know, it's unpredictable and it hasn't really happened before. So I think that's why the Justice Department did not put it as part of their lawsuit because they can't really prove it's going to be a problem because it's never been a problem before. But if 
someone tried to just you know refuse to certify the election for no reason i i feel like there would be a judicial intervention there because this is not like a political question this is not something where there is you know people don't vote for the certification board people don't ask the certification board to make an objective opinion on if they liked the results or not they want them to say yes we dig everything we dig our jobs we dig it right or no there's this problem we need help not we don't like it or there was fraud what's the fraud there was fraud you know like that i don't see that working i yeah and i don't really see anyone trying it either uh, i i think it's one of those things that they did for the political teeth and to make it seem like they're doing something um rather than an actual belief that they're going to use it affirmatively to take an election away i hope i'm right about that but i just i don't see it playing out in a way where even if they blatantly decided to try to take it that that would be successful well and to give you a sense of how nebulous this threat really is so mark elias who's a democratic elections lawyer he pulled together a blog post with a proposal on how to address vulnerabilities in the certification process he really outlines three things. One, that state officials who are responsible for certifying federal election results should not be allowed to rely on any information other than election returns themselves. Second, that we remove unnecessary steps in the certification process so that when local board of elections certify election results, that those get immediately passed on to the state as opposed to getting caught up in any other unnecessary steps. And that finally, Elias proposes that Congress should abolish the requirement that a state's governor or secretary of state or a partisan election board, that they sign the final certification of election. And he proposes that instead, a panel of three state justices should be required to sign the final certification, including the state's chief justice and two other justices from the state Supreme Court. But I think basically the goal is to put this in the hands of officials who are less connected to partisan politics. Even so, though, it's not clear what exactly those three ideas would address in a possible certification crisis. Um, I, I think there are ideas that kind of make sense on their face, but it, it is unclear to me sort of how a local elections board or an elections official that wants to block certification or, or turn certification into a partisan weapon, how they could actually be successful unless they have a court that validates their efforts. So I think, you know, obviously something worth keeping an eye on, but it's sort of a challenge to figure out how that could actually be used. Um, even though Republicans are putting this kind of, these kind of procedures into some of the election reform laws that they've considered since the 2020 election. The, the place where I, I close here for this whole topic and the certification issue is that it is a shame that we have reached this place where voting is so blatantly politicized. But the unfortunate truth is like that's been the history of the United States, literally its entire history. I mean, it's hard to forget the fact that, you know, at the beginning of this country, the only people that could vote were white landowning males and so we typically go through these cycles and fights where the right to vote gets expanded and people fight about it 
and push the ball forward. And so the important thing here is to not get demoralized by the fact that these fights are happening, is to recognize that this is what always happens and that the critical thing for all good, you know, patriotic Americans to do is to just keep fighting for the right to vote and to ensure that your neighbors, regardless of, you know, any factor, Republican, Democrat, black, white, can vote. And, you know, that I think is a very important obligation of everyone in this country. And I, I'm happy to see that the federal government is doing something about it. And I uh, hope that these lawsuits will be successful. I, I don't have high hopes, but I would be happy to see that. And I think that just emphasizes how important 2022 is and getting out to vote in those elections and in those primaries to ensure we have the best candidates running on the strongest messages. And, you know, to, to me, I, I think things are moving in the right direction because of the fact that, you know, a decade ago, even pre-Trump, I feel like this would not be getting nearly as much attention as it is now. And I feel like this is an issue that a lot of voters have become incensed by the perception that Republicans are trying to keep people from voting just based on race. And I think previously it would be a lot harder for people to believe that was what was going on. I don't think we would have seen the coverage in the AJC that we did five years ago about this legislation that primarily this law, SB202, was passed for fake reasons about voting protection. I think they would have just said they're trying to make voting safer and more secure in Georgia and left it at that, whereas this year it was pretty constant coverage of the fact that there was no reason to do this and that Democrats were accusing them for doing it for racial reasons. And I, I think that is progress even if it's raising the temperature and even if the outcome might not be where we want it to be right now, I think as far as building a political movement against these actions in the future and overturning these actions, if, uh, you know, Democrats are successful in elections, I think that is a long-term effect of this conversation that, you know, is not immediately apparent, but I think is definitely there and we will see, you know, in the elections to come and the decades to come. And unfortunately, it's going to be a longer fight than any of us want it to be, probably. But I, I don't think this is going to be the end of democracy as we know it at this moment. Hopefully I'm right. We'll, we'll have to tune in next week on Beachbot to find out. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see if there's still a free press by the next time we're available to record. And if you're wrong, Luke, this may be the last episode of Peachpot ever. I, I don't think I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we are going to leave it there for now. Um, you know, lots to look forward to on this. You know, again, this is a court case that's probably going to play out probably even beyond the 2022 election. So probably, you know, there really isn't likely to be any resolution to this particular challenge in a way that's going to impact the 2022 elections. But I think as a closing note, it's important to remember that these many of the provisions in SB 202 are aimed at making it more difficult to vote. None of them make it impossible to vote. And so if the message that you take away from SB 202 is you shouldn't be voting, that's the wrong message to take. Like you should still vote. You should still make sure your friends are registered to vote, that they're voting. Um, these are barriers that can be overcome. It's just going to take a lot of effort on the part of 
voters and, and people who care about voting access to make that a reality um, and to hopefully put people in place who would like to see more people voting and not fewer. Uh, but for now, we're going to leave it there for today. So Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here and you know, ha- happy to talk about this important topic. Alrighty, friends, go vote, go register to vote, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.